Let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, may our lives truly be tied up in you. We sang that, and may it be reality. May we be empowered by your spirit in love with you and willing to share about your son. Father, may we be a lot like Nehemiah, that in spite of what is around him, in spite of other responsibilities, he refused to marginalize you in his life. Father, the temptation is real for us to become so busy, so preoccupied, advancing in this success or that, or working in this arena or that, that we forget you as our highest priority. Thank you for reminding of us of you through Nehemiah. Guide our time, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you all are in Nehemiah 5. Allow me to summarize 1 Kings chapters 7 to 12. We will get to Nehemiah 5. In 1 Kings chapters 7 and onward, we have the unified kingdom. You remember the time of the judges. It's a time when the book of Judges tells us four times everyone did what was right in their own eyes rather than in the eyes of God. Rather than pursuing God and pursuing the things of God and not allowing life to marginalize God, in the period of Judges, everyone did what they wanted to do rather than what God instructed us to do. It was a dark period of 430 years. After that came the monarchy, not all that much better. We have King Saul, who really does not have a heart for God. Then we have King David, and Scripture tells us that he had a heart for the Lord, and, and we're encouraged by that, not only because he loved and sought the Lord, but he also had a few sinful paragraphs, entire chapters, and we see that we can sometimes fail and still, as we repent and confess, still have a heart for God. And then there's Solomon, who started well and faded fast and allowed the foreign women that he married to drift his mind away from God and towards idolatry. And after Solomon came his son Rehoboam, and Rehoboam naturally expected to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. It was his birthright, or so he thought. And you remember 10 of the 12 tribes, the 10 northern tribes, they come to Rehoboam and they said, we desire to serve you faithfully, but we have two requests. You need to lower the taxes and you need to end the mosque called the corvée, the forced labor. You remember under Solomon, he expanded the boundaries. He built the walls of Jerusalem that are now destroyed in Nehemiah. He built the walls of Megiddo and Hazor and Gerar. 
He built the Temple Mount. And he also built the palace. In fact, we're told that it took 13 years to build the palace. That was no small feat with 700 wives and 300 concubines. It was a big palace. And at the death of Solomon, the people said, you can't have that forced labor. Several months out of every year, the men were forced to leave their homes without remuneration to build for the government no money exchanging hands. Lower the taxes, end the corvée. We will serve you to our dying day. So Rehoboam thought about it. He said, I need three days to consider this. And he went to the wise, aged sages of his father. He said, what do you all say? And they said, it's a reasonable request. If you will do this, they will serve you to the dying day. Go ahead, concede the request. And that didn't sit well with Rehoboam. So he went to some guys who grew up in the palace with him. They were palace princes, born with silver spoons in their mouths, never working a hard day in their life. He said, what do you guys say? And they said, who's king? Who's boss? Who's in charge? Tell them that if your father whipped them with whips, you will whip them with scorpions. That you'll increase the tax, increase the corvée. And you remember that titles mean nothing. You can have a title and it doesn't mean you're a good leader. He had the title king and he was a bad leader. And he listened to the young guns. And he lost five-sixths of his kingdom. They seceded from the union. They crowned Jeroboam as king. And Rehoboam was left with one-sixth of all that he had inherited three days earlier. What was the problem? Well, there were lots of them, but one problem is that he couldn't handle success. It was Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish philosopher and historian, who made this statement. He said, for a hundred people that can handle adversity, only one can handle success and handle it well. Nehemiah is that one. Nehemiah has had a life of success, and he has handled it well. I don't know about you. I'm unsure about me. What level of success that God has allowed in our life. But regardless of what level, have we handled it well? Nehemiah handled success well. I want to pick up in Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so, 
because of the fear of God. As you and I grow in success, we also have to grow in personal integrity. Let's consider the life of Nehemiah. He was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He served in the citadel of Susa, a thousand miles from Jerusalem. He was prime minister. He was the second most powerful man on the face of the earth, but he gave it up. He gave up all of that success because the city of the great king, Jerusalem, lay in ruins. And God's reputation was being marred among the nations. So he gave up the second most powerful job on the face of the earth to return to the city of his ancestors, a city he probably had never been to before, to rebuild the walls. And while he's rebuilding, people can see his natural leadership capabilities. And somehow, whether the people appoint him or, or King Artaxerxes appoints him, somehow he is appointed governor of Jerusalem. Now this is a promotion if you've given up your job as the second most powerful man and you're now unemployed building a wall a thousand miles away. So now he's a governor. And he's a governor at least for one term of 12 years in this part of the text. That's from 445 to 433 B.C. Understand that to be the governor means to put yourself in a position where you can get a lot of money. The governor is the IRS. He collects taxes for Uncle Artaxerxes. And we know that Uncle Artaxerxes requires 35 to $40 million annually from this part of the world. We also know that the average governor collected between 75 and $80 million of taxes each year. You see, what Artaxerxes required was a set fee. Everything beyond that, the governor pocketed. So we have governors pocketing between 30 and $40 million annually, back when a million dollars bought us something. Bought a lot. We're talking 2,500 years ago. This is an incredibly lucrative job. There are some who suggest that to be a governor of a large city like Jerusalem, outside of being a king, is the most lucrative job in the Middle East at this part and this time period in the world. This is incredibly lucrative. And the more he taxed, the more he kept. And it didn't matter how much he taxed. The people could do nothing about it. And so governor after governor after governor taxed the people, then loaned the people money back at usury rates, and they squeezed the people for everything the people had. In addition to that, they were required to feed the governor and his family and everyone who came to the governor's palace. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year, 365 days for 12 years. Everything that Governor Nehemiah wanted to eat or he would serve to his guests 
were required to be paid by the taxpayers. It was on the taxpayer dole. They had to provide it. And yet the text tells us that Nehemiah didn't take that. He had already outlawed usury. He is not collecting more than he's supposed to. And a fringe benefit that he's required to have or he's blessed to have, that the people feed him, they feed his household, and they feed everyone who comes, he won't take. He is going to pay for all of it for 12 years out of his own pocket. He's bucking precedence. Why? Because of verse 15. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Businesswoman, businessman, if there's a verse that you can put in front of your desk, maybe even a half a verse, this is a pretty good one. I did not do so because of the fear of God. It doesn't matter if I can get away with it. It doesn't matter if people expect it. What matters is what God thinks. What matters is the glory of God in and through my life shining out to others. I did not do so because of the fear of God. The higher you and I go in any area of ministry, any area of work, any area of life, the higher we go, the more stringent God's requirements for us in morality, integrity will be. I think of James chapter 3, verse 1. It applies to my profession. Let not many of you presume to be teachers, my brethren. For do you not know that we who teach will incur a stricter judgment? The more times I teach, the more people I teach, the more influence I have as a teacher, the more stringent God's judgment of what I teach will become. But it's not just true in my profession. It's true in all of our professions. Luke 12, 48 says, To whom much is given, that much more is required. Whatever area of influence that God has brought into your life, into my life, whatever area that you and I have in success or advancement, the more that God allows in our life, the more that God blesses in our life, the more stringent the judgment of God on how we utilize what God has entrusted to us. Think about this from a, a business point of view. Maybe you have a job in which you have to be there at 7.30 in the morning. But because you are a Christ follower, you are there at 7.25. But there are non-Christ followers who are there at 745, and they get away with it for now. You're a Christ follower, and your phone is dinging a lot. But you're not going to interact on that phone on work hours unless that's part of your work. Because you serve a higher power. You're not going to be fooling around with social media on the job unless it's allowed or part of your job because you serve the king. And it's the king of whom you and I give an account. Nehemiah understood this. He said, I did not do so because of the fear of God. I have a good friend. 
He's also a pastor, and uh, years ago, you'll know how old this illustration is in a moment. Years ago, he and I used to write letters back and forth to one another. But it always bothered me. When I would get a letter from him, it would have a bulk mail stamp. That means he stole from two people. He stole from his employer, who was the church, and he also stole from the government or the post office because the bulk mail stamp was less than a normal stamp. He was stealing twice as a pastor and signing it, God's glory, and then his name. It's easy for us to justify these things. But when we begin to think, we're not trying to influence others by our behavior as much as we're trying to bring glory to God. And when we realize that God is the one who sees all, it changes how you and I respond, how we act, our motives, our actions, our thoughts, even our inactivities. We are to do all things for God's glory. Nehemiah understood this. Nehemiah was not sidetracked. Think about his job. He becomes governor. As governor, he's got a big job of collecting taxes. He's got to go or send someone to every single property. And let me tell you, Artaxerxes taxed the number of trees on your property. It's one of the reasons that Israel was defoliated until the 20th century. Because the Persians taxed how many trees were on your property, so everyone cut them down. If I have 100 trees, I got taxed 100 times. If I have no trees, well, I still get taxed, but not as much. So not only did you go to the house, you had to count every tree in somebody's yard. It was hard to be a tax collector. He was the number one tax collector. He was the ambassador. He was the entertainer. He was the judge. He came a thousand miles to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls because it's the city of the great king and they lie in ruins and people are mocking the God of the universe. They're holding him in low regard because of what his city looks like. So Nehemiah comes and in the midst of this, he's appointed governor and he's now a tax collector. He's now a judge. He's now an ambassador. He's now an entertainer. I would think he'd find someone else to build the walls. But that's not what the text says. The text says that he continued to rebuild the walls. Let me read verses 16 to 18. And I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared, read these next three words, at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine and abundance. Yet this all I did not demand, the food allowance, etc. He did not require it because... Chapter 5, verse 3 reminds us there's a drought, there's a famine, people are impoverished. He's not going to take advantage of the people. Almost every promotion has the opportunity 
to take our eyes off the Lord. If you've been advanced in your job, suddenly you have more responsibility, you have more catch-up, more work, more anxiety, more clients, more customers, more hours. It has the opportunity for you, for me, to take our eyes off of the king. It's pretty easy for us to marginalize the things of God, for us to marginalize our service to God, for us to marginalize our service to family. It's pretty easy as you and I advance that we forsake our first love. Think with me in Revelation 2 and 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, we have the seven churches of Asia. These are real historical churches. And of these churches, only two receive full commendation. Five of them, the Lord finds some shortcomings, a few or many, in all of them. I would say all of the shortcomings can be summarized by what Jesus said to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 4. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. You see, when you and I advance, when we get more clients, when we get more customers, when we get a promotion... The tyranny of the urgent begins to set in, and we can forget that our purpose here on earth is to bring glory to God and to enjoy Him forever. We can forget why God gave us life. We can forget the God of creation and the God of recreation in our life if we know Jesus as Savior. And we can begin to marginalize God. But Nehemiah did not. Nehemiah has traveled a thousand miles. He gave up the, the position as second most powerful man on the face of the earth. He's unemployed. He's building the walls. He suddenly becomes governor. He's going to be governor for the next 12 years. Why doesn't he appoint someone else to build the walls? Because that's what God laid on his heart to do. He wasn't going to allow the promotion, the advancement, the additional clientele, to push the things of God to the side. He wasn't going to take God's good blessing and having been blessed by God to marginalize God and marginalize one's work for God and marginalize service for God. He was going to rebuild the walls. I love Nehemiah. He has not forsaken his first love. Let me read to us out of Psalm 75. I think Nehemiah understands this well. Psalm 75, verses 5 to 7. Do not lift up your horn on high. That is, don't toot your own horn. Or speak with haughty neck. Don't be self-impressed. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. That is, you weren't promoted, you didn't have success, you didn't have advancement from things on earth. But it is God, it says, who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. You see, what Nehemiah understands is this. He's a hard worker. He's probably an educated man. He's probably put in a lot in developing himself 
And we should do the same, not discounting that. But ultimately, Nehemiah understands that success comes from the Lord. Advancement comes from the Lord. More clientele comes from the Lord. Promotion comes from the Lord. If we had been born in Sudan, you could be the brightest person in the world. You're not going to advance to where we are today. If you have been born in Somalia, you'd be lucky to live a normal lifespan, regardless of how brilliant and hardworking you and I are. Ultimately, God is responsible for any success, any promotion, any advancement. And think with me this way. If God is responsible for our advancement, our promotion, our success, ultimately, not discounting hard work and education and effort, not discounting that at all, but if God is ultimately responsible, what are we saying to God when we turn around and say, this promotion has made me too busy to serve you. This advancement has made me too busy to have devotions with you. My job has too many demands. I don't have time for prayer with you. I don't have time for caring for my family that you've entrusted to me because of all of my career that you have given me. What are we saying to God if he ultimately is responsible for our advancement if we turn around and we marginalize God? Nehemiah will have none of it. He travels a thousand miles. He becomes governor. He outlaws usury. When the trumpet sounds and the enemy comes, he's on the front lines. He's got a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other, and he's rebuilding the wall. He gets the position of governor. He's now the IRS. He won't take the banquet. I estimate that he will have 1.3 million meals that he will serve during his 12 years. If he is feeding... On a daily basis, one ox, six sheep, a number of birds, and wine of all kinds. He is averaging 300 adults at his table every day for 12 years. Some of you are incredible hosts and hostesses. But 1.3 million meals? And he footed the bill himself. This is an incredible man, an incredible leader. Probably most in this room have had a lousy boss. You can put your hands down, my coworkers. <laughs> People who don't care, who don't love, who are not concerned, we probably all had that kind of leader in our life. Nehemiah is not like that. He outlaws usury. He builds the walls. He taxes fairly. He doesn't further impoverish poor people. He sets an example. Why? I did not do that because of the fear of God. Look at verse 19. I just love this verse. 19. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. That's what we ought to be able to say to God at the end of our lives. God, I'm an open book. 
evaluate how I've treated those who I have led, those who I have influenced, those who I have rubbed shoulders with, evaluated how I've treated them, and then respond to me correspondingly. That's what Nehemiah says. How I've treated others, God, please treat me that way. That's what I want to be able to say at the end of my life. That's what you want to say to God at the end of your life. I want to conclude by reading a little contract. Uh, It's in your bulletin. It's your entire sermon note. I got lazy. That's all you got this week. It's really a cross between Psalm 75 and Nehemiah 5. Dear God, I will gratefully accept the opportunities for advancement which you send my way. I will, however, carefully count the cost, lest I begin to marginalize my relationship to you, or I begin to marginalize my God-given obligations to family and Christian service. If, however, I can proceed with advancement without marginalizing the aforementioned, I do still realize that increased temptation will be at my door. Satan will work hard to destroy my priorities, my values, my commitments. However, through your strength, God, I will carefully guard myself. I vow to use God-given opportunities to serve you, to witness for you, and to provide for my family. May I, along with Nehemiah, Be able to pray, remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for your people. May that be true for each of us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the life of Nehemiah. Not just an historical individual, though he clearly is that, but a model a model for us, a model for how we ought to live, a model for how we accept blessing from your hand and responsibility to handle that blessing well. Father, may we never take your blessing and use it as an excuse to marginalize our relationship with you, our relationship with our family, and our service to you. Father, that's a temptation, a real one in our world. And perhaps from time to time we have even succumbed to it. Forgive us. And may we go in a different path for your glory and our betterment. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.